You're listening to Heart of the Hunter, a serialized fantasy novel set in Koronai, the magical country. This story was written and performed by Sam Chuck. For more information about this podcast, including upcoming role-playing game releases associated with this novel, check out heartofthehunter.com. Now, please enjoy Heart of the Hunter, Episode 10. The forest night was uneasy. The swamp waters, used to stagnation and the slow eddies of a dispersed, lazy river, did not rest well. Even protected as she was by the living swamp itself, Uline could not help but feel the threat that was on the wind. Somewhere out there, the green ward was still stalking her. She could feel it. Even though the night birds and the hateful blood-sucking insects could not tell her where he was. Also, there was a tinge in the air that spoke of change, that spoke of a new threat. The first stirring of spring had brought it, faint and tremulous. But now? Now it swelled full on and threatened the delicate balance of the swamp. Her swamp. Uline went over to the nail tongue she had bound hand and foot, a young tangresh that had been tithed to her, due tribute from the tribes that depended on her assistance to keep the armies of the soft ones from taking Gaikul away from them. Its life force was full of hate and the will to live. It was twisting this way and that, striving even though it knew it was doomed, to somehow escape and flee through the trackless waste of the swamp. Her swamp, her land, where every creature paid her heed. She looked into the eyes of her sacrifice. Your blood will go to fuel my sight, so that I will see that which threatens... In this you die nobly for your tribe. Somehow, the thing was not pleased that it had been chosen. It was so hard to find good sacrifices these days. But it would have to do. She slit the creature's throat with one of her talons and began to pour it out onto the moss beneath her, watching the patterns emerge. She felt the thing struggle a bit, needlessly, a struggle that even hastened its death, for its little heart pumped faster, and thus hastened its own exsanguination. Soon it quivered and was still, its blood steaming on the thirsty moss. She crouched with some grunting and effort to survey the pattern so created, and hung the lantern she'd made out of swarming fireblood worms low so she could read the patterns. It was not long before the shapes of the flowing blood on the moss resolved, and insight poured into her. So... The soft ones think to send more soldiers to try and open the road north, do they? They were like the cohort ants 
who continue to try even though it is doomed to do so. Even though that Sidalian warrior and his men had died the year before, all of them wasted and their blood sent to feed the marsh and call her spirit servants, the soft ones continue to push their way through her territory, through the sacred hunting grounds of the Gaikul. This would not do. Half-nailed tongue herself, Ulini was revered among the many nailed tribes, born in the forest during a holy time with the omen of a blood toad croaking out of season. She was destined to this path. Born of a brood slave, she had been protected by her tribe until conflict brought a change of chieftain. The tribal fight left her abandoned by her father in the deep forest early in life, and after she lost every fear she had fighting back the hungry knight, she had decided to spite him by surviving. Alone in the dark forest, having faced her fear, the swamp called to her and spoke to her, and in time she grew used to hearing it, and then began to understand its tutelage. She thought she could trust the swamp, thought she had mastered its every secret, but it was her hubris to think so. It was not long after that that she slipped into a bog and died. The creatures that ate at her body could do nothing to her soul, her mind. She fought them, using her own talons, fought her way out of the womb of decay that was the bog. She was reborn a shaman of the brackish pools, the moss-hung trees, the gnarled roots of the stagnant ponds in the mud. Half-nail, half-elemental of the black water, but completely a shaman. A shaman who could command respect, the respect of all who trespass in her lands, even the respect of the half-nail sorcerer chieftain of Blackpool, who quickly came to challenge her. She was able to strike up a deal with the chieftain, and soon after, the nail-tongued clans began to arrive from far away and near. For many years, the nails' storytellers had told them of the legend of the promise of Gaikul, the land of fresh kills. While the North Woods were far from the ideal of Gaikul, this did not stop the nail chanters from describing the land Ulini controlled as such. Soon, Nail from all throughout the five land swords came to partake in Gaikul, and that is when Ulin decided to assert her power over the river road, to wrest it away from the soft one's control. More afraid of her than they were angry at each other, the nail tongues fell into a kind of uneasy alliance and formed hunting parties made up of a blend of nail species, something no other chieftain had ever been able to accomplish. So now, Mother Ulin commanded that the land of Gaikul remain pristine, uninvaded from those soft ones of the Southland. Her fingers lingered, 
as she squatted over the blood stains on the moss, reading the portents and the swirls and patterns there. Three breaths came and went, and she slowly closed her eyes as if somehow trying to shut out the truth she read there. The portents read. She turned to another tangresh. Cutting its foot bonds, the rat lizard dropped to the mouse below. Shaking, it slowly stood on its feet. Uline addressed the tangresh in nail. Go forth from this place and speak to the chiefs of the blood wolves and the death birds. Let them know that Mother Udine wills them to a war council. The soft ones come. They bring guns. Once again, we must fight to preserve Gaikul. I hear and obey, Mother Uline. Go. She turned away from the rest of the captive Tangresh then, not even noticing them as they looked forlornly after their freed brother, wishing that it could have been one of them instead. She sought comfort in the beautiful snake that was her familiar and wrapped herself in its strong body. More was coming, the portents had said. She would know at nightfall. There was little to do while the woman Chandra slept inside Aran's magical tent where Raven watched her. The gypsies went about the grisly work of stacking the bodies of the men who had refused to accept the peace they had offered and kindling a pyre beneath them. Alabar had spoken a brief blessing on their bodies so that their souls would be released and not linger. Raven had found some privacy in the tent as she had volunteered to guard Chandra's post-healing sleep. She had unlimbered her satchel and brought out the box she had found on the ground near where the Changaman had fallen. The box was not metal, she found, though it appeared to be, nor was it wood, though it was as light as wood. Touching it, she could feel the magic in the thing, feel how it literally throbbed in her fingers when she was still. Turning it over, she saw a strange impression in the thing, a pucker she explored with her fingertips. There were ridges and nooks in the thing. The hole was round and about the size of a Blackpool trading token, though slightly oval. Aran poked his head in the tent, his eyes shining from the mage light lantern inside the tent. "'What is that?' he asked. "'This? Nothing. Uh, just a box.' No, I mean that, he said, pointing at her chest. She rolled her eyes at him. As if you'd never seen... No, of course I have. No, look, it's glowing, Aran said, pointing. She felt down in the neckline of her light riverboater's shirt. Hanging between her breasts was a pendant, one that had been there for some time now, warm against her skin. And it was glowing a soft blue that grew stronger as she brought it closer to the box. Fascinating, Aran said, and sat down inside the tent. Yeah, Raven said, 
This must be a key. She took the necklace off and held the pendant in her hand, the cameo of her mother. She brought it closer to the impression on the box, but then stopped, looking up at Arin. Look, uh, do you mind? Raven asked. Rarely, actually, Arin said. It said I'm quite incorrigible. I'll give encouragement, then, she said, and one of her blades materialized in her free hand. Okay, okay, remember, it's not lucky to threaten a gypsy, Arn said, rising and turning to leave the tent in one fluid motion. I'll keep that in mind. Just give me a minute, okay? She said, looking frustrated, checking to see if this ruckus had awakened Chandra. Very well, dear Raven, very well, he said, turning and striding out of sight. Closing her eyes, she slid the cameo into place. She rotated it as it could only sink into the hard surface of the box in one orientation, and then there was a feeling of completion as the cameo slid perfectly into place. A heartbeat later, the box itself opened. The lid was smooth, the edges soft, not sharp. Inside were several small things. Raven bent her head to examine them, one by one, in the dim light inside the tent. A leather-bound journal of some kind. A leather archer's guard, the kind bowmen would strap to their forearm to avoid the burn of the bowstring. Most importantly to Raven, however, was some kind of spherical gemstone, iridescent and beautiful, glowing magically from within. She picked up the stone and examined it, tried to guess its price or provenance, and found she could not. Every time she thought she knew what sort of stone it was, it would change slightly. The fact that it was magical in some way, and not just some river rock bathed in mage light, well, that was worth something by itself she thought as she placed the gem back in the box. She picked up the archer's guard and turned it over to see the decoration on the other side. It was a beautiful stag, his eyes noble and sad, emerging from the forest. Some kind of hunter's totem, perhaps. It was very definitely of Lunargenti construction. The leather itself was heavy elk hide, the craftsmanship so fine and detailed it could have only been done by Lunargens. She considered strapping it on herself, but it was useless to a blade thrower like she was, and most likely it would just get it in the way. It may have been magical too, but not in a way that Raven could sense, though that was not saying much. Finally, she picked up the journal. Inside the front cover, in her mother's florid hand, was scribed a very pretentious title. Being an extensive journal of the life and times of the illustrious wizardress known as Gamin Razia the Great, her travels, adventures, and extensive explorations into the occult unknown. True to her mother's grandiose nature, the title had been the entirety of the memoir. The rest of the pages were unrelieved blank as she flipped through it. Shaking her head, she placed the journal and the other items back inside the box and closed the lid. 
With a sound like a gasp, the box sealed and closed, featureless again except for the reverse impression of the cameo. The cameo fell loose into her hand. She slumped against the soft wall of the tent. Heavily guarded against emotions, flowed past her curiosity and her combat anxiety and her exhaustion. The pattern of events began to make sense. She came to the slow realization of what this was and how it had come to her. This was the box her mother had died to protect, to no avail. They, the Chang'in gang or some other Blackpool villain, had hired a thug to kill her mother with her own dagger. After her death, they were able to steal the ward box, for that was what it must be, a box made of nothing but quiescent, protective, magical energy, indestructible and impenetrable, except perhaps to the most potent magic. But Abigail Darwin's letter to her, delivered through the factor, had been specific. She was the one in danger. That he was looking for her, because he had come to realize that somehow she had the key to her mother's stolen box. Perhaps the Chang'e's Kwadong witches had sensed for it. It would have been easy for them to take some jeweler's wax and make a reproduction of the cameo using the impression in the ward box. Then they'd know what they were looking for. Perhaps someone had told him about the cameo she always wore. And then the Chang'e must have had Mad Jack hunting for her. And that meant Jack was looking for a woman along the road. And when he found Chandra... Silently, she hugged the box to herself, and tears quietly leaked from the corners of her eyes. She was, she decided, somewhat responsible in a strange way for Chandra's assault. Now she realized. Jack had been set to find her, but found Chandra instead. But that which pricked her heart the sharpest was that her mother had never told her about her true power, about her wizardry, about the fact that she was once some kind of freebooter, perhaps a shaper of magic who could create mystic wards. And how had the Quadong learned about the box? And why was it so important to them? Was it the magical gem, the arm guard? Why did her mother have to die? And then there was the anger, anger that the Changi had gotten away. Wordless tears of regret, rage, and loss flowed down her cheeks, but Raven had long since learned how to keep silent while crying, and Chandra, still unconscious, slept through her pain. Miles away, having just come from his meeting with the Brotherhood near the river, Kenhill the Green Ward paused at a sound in the forest. Little crept up on the water and in the woodlands, so a sound so close was always cause for alarm. He slowly turned around to face that which had somehow gained fatal advantage on him. There in the shadows, a magnificent stag stood, eyes glowing, 
focused totally on him. For a moment, Kinhill froze, astounded by the sight. The stag was a sacred animal to the Lunar Genti and to the keepers whom Kenhill served, so he did not move his hand to his weapon. The stag considered him silent, his old and many-tined antlers giving Kenhill the impression of a bush full of black swords. Kenhill did nothing but waited breathlessly. A red light burned, pulsing from within the stag's breast, its heart beating eternally. I have returned, came a voice that seemed to emerge from everywhere at once. Come to me, the stag said, declining his head. Kenhill held the creature's gaze and took a half-step forward, then froze, his inner eyes filling with visions, a murder, blood, a hunt, a search, riders on horseback, a black-haired woman with daggers, the face of the wizard, Razia, all at once flowing one after the other, so quickly that it was painful to experience. Then, as quickly as he was there, the stag was gone, with no movement or sound to betray its passage. Hands shaking, Kenhill reached up to touch the pendant around his own neck. It was made of a smooth, polished river stone inscribed with an oak leaf. He grasped it in his hand and closed his eyes. There is news, Ken. There is news for us all, he whispered, bowing his head in deep communion. Although little sun penetrated deep into the canopy of the swamp, Uline could tell the night from the day. True as she'd read the portents, the sun had already sunk into the swamp water when the outer wardens she had placed to guard her enclave reported movement. Sending her spirit to borrow their eyes, she chuckled low to herself. Yes, war leader Chersk comes with his hunting band. She whispered to her familiar, who squeezed her gently in response. His arrival will be welcome. She went quickly to the large cypress knee throne she had chosen for herself to keep her head and shoulders above the rest of the nail so that they would have no doubt as to their place and to hers. The larger part of the hunting party came to stand in a willow grove nearby. Only the war leader and a few other Tangresh dared approach her, and that with no small amount of fear, she noted, pleased. All honor to the mother, Uleen, Trosk began, executing a graceful bow that included both pairs of arms. Gaikul chick, he grunted and she declined her head, receiving his gesture of respect. Gaikul is, and always will be, yes, my hunter. What brings you before me? Uline said, as her familiar began to unwind and taste the air, its glittering, multicolored scales shining in the gloom. I am come to enter a prey into the chant of death, Mother Uline, 
there is one who has used poison in hunting us, and we would declare vendetta against her. Poison, you say? Is it the male bane? It is, Mother Luulene. The body of our fallen brother has already gone to feed the deep pool, as is your commandment. But we have must avenge his spirit, or risk being haunted by him and his ancestors. Yes, I understand. Very well. What name do you give? We know not the one name the soft ones give, but we have called them a new name. They are come with forelegs pulling wheel boxes. They are come with flash sticks and death, and they are not far from this place. Our scouts stalk them even now. We will name them Fesikfiska, the cowardly ones. Very well. The name is given and accepted. Let all of the people come to know them for their true name and grow to hate them just as well. Show me the scouts who discovered these ones. Those ten Greshi came forward, their eyes wide. Rumors of what Uleen did to the outcast ten Greshi tithed to her had already reached their ears, so they showed every respect. I did see then that the one who killed our Agrim hunter was slight, with dark hair. She wears no weapons, but her sting is felt even then. A few breaths passed, and the Tangresh tried not to see her snake's eyes glittering as she breathed. Her breath scent was like the finest bloom to the carrion eater, but still he could not help but shake in fear. Uline reached out through the pattern of the future she'd read and saw the present. Hear arrows singing through the air. Heard the scream of the dying one. The raven stood to the side, competitor to carry on, unwilling to be leashed or owned, trickster, who flew its own way. And then she saw the one the Tangresh spoke of. Yes, I know this one. I have seen her in my visions. They have caused Mother Uline much displeasure. She and her friends have killed one of our sworn protectors, just as the sun came down, though of soft stock, the one called Mad Jack, served us well as eyes and years, served to dissuade the soft ones from the city from venturing forth into our land. This one, and the ones who ride with her, have earned the mother's enmity. So our vendetta is blessed, Chersk said, eyes hopeful. Blessed and supported. I have called the chieftains of the blood wolves and the death birds. They will send warriors to be placed under war leader Chersk's command. Furthermore, Uline said, gesturing to the canopy of the trees above, the swamp itself will lend its aid. Will you strike then? We will strike, Mother Uline. As soon as the people are gathered. Very well. May it be soon. Gaikul requires its revenge. It will be as you say, great shaman. You've been listening to Heart of the Hunter, a Koronai Chronicles story. Heart of the Hunter is brought to you by the Fireheart Foundry family of podcasts. 
Fireheart Foundry also produces Fledgling, a Leaden Universe science fiction novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. The Bears Grove Podcast. Dragonkin, the podcast for kids and gaming. The Square One Podcast. And Vibrant Living. Find out more about the Fireheart Foundry at fireheartfoundry.com. This podcast is brought to you under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use, license 2.5. Music is provided by the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening, and we invite you back to our fire real soon.